you gela ya ye yagona pontham deodatwaranontam ustrosht yagon kur beb holkur u apie ye der Welcome to Con Langry, podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley, and with me in the great state of Wisconsin, we have William Annis. Hello. And uh, where are you, Mike, today? I'm in uh, Utica, Michigan. Okay. In a comfort in Michigan, we have Mike Lentine. So, Hello. Mike, yes. mm-hmm. you never stay in one place for very long, do you? Well, I do. I just, I, I mean, it just, I like to share, be, no, I guess I don't. <laughs> <laughs> At least not on Sundays. <laughs> if he keeps moving, they can't catch him. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but no, yes. I'm up here for a wedding. I'm up here for a friend's wedding and uh, it's it was lovely. Uh, it was like a bit cooler today. Only like, oh, I don't know, 90 something. I know. Isn't it? It's such a relief. <sighs> yeah, I know. Uh, but the people next door um, seem to have brought a dog in. So if you hear a yelping, that's not me, in case you're curious. <laughs> Just filling in there. Uh, I Just haven't heard in. any dog yet. So well, I haven't Once either, we start talking about the subject, I'm sure the dog will have opinions. So mm-hmm. they have such good yes. hearing, they'll hear us recording. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I figured I'd warn you, um, and if it doesn't happen, then hooray. Uh, I do want to say that um, we're starting something new with the show in that we're going to start a new format. Uh, a few people have talked about how uh, our episodes have been going very, very long. And I agree with them on that. And then some other people have said, but they like the ver- the long discussions. Uh, so um, I suggested earlier, and these guys were agreeing with me, that we are going to start a new thing in that, um, at least for now, we're going to try separating the two sort of segments of the show so that one week we'll have a discussion of a linguistics topic, and the next week we'll have a discussion of a featured language. New sounds Probably. scary. Why don't, I was going to say, what? why don't we just say modified? New sounds scary. Modified. <laughs> Sorry. Continue. Uh, yeah. Well, I don't know. This is the first major change of the format since episode two. So. Uh, oh wow. Yeah, the first episode had three segments. <laughs> bum bum bum. But anyway, um, minus feedback. But um, why don't we go ahead and get started? Once since that announcement's out of the way, um, and we will set ask. And we will talk about what are we talking about today? <laughs> Syllable <laughs> and word shapes. Yes. Hooray. So, William, take it away. Um. So, apart from your actual phonological inventory, I think the most important thing that de- determines the sort of phonetic character of your language is your syllable shapes. Mm-hmm. Um. I think a single sound inventory 
could be used in radically different ways to produce radically different sounding languages. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if this is as true as it used to be, um, but I think very often beginning conlangers fall down here. They may not be very systematic about syllable shapes and word shapes, so you get kind of strange things happening, and that can cause you deep agonies down the line once you start getting into morphology. Hmm. Um, yeah. I don't know. When I was starting, this was something I often screwed up, um, but I don't know if it's better now with sort of online conlang communities. I think people have more opportunities to see a process for conlanging and creating languages that might lead to a little bit more care about this. Often mm-hmm. when people post sort of, uh, you post sort of sketches on, on the forums and stuff, and they don't have any information on this, people will ask for phonotactics. So I think people think about it a little bit more nowadays. Sure. So beginners have more opportunities to be, to suggest they think about this. Well, that's good. Um, so uh, I'm going to use a lot of terminology that we've discussed on previous episodes. I forget which one. Um, we're going to talk about sort of the parts of a syllable, of which yes. there are basically three. There's the onset, which is the opening, the, you know, the beginning consonant or consonant cluster of a syllable. Mm-hmm. There's the nucleus, which is the part of the syllable you can hold on for a really long time. It's usually going to be a vowel or a diphthong. Um, and then the coda is whatever consonants end the syllable. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about an open syllable, that's one that does not have a coda, and a closed syllable does have a coda. Yeah. Uh, and and surprisingly large number of languages are very sensitive to the difference between open and closed syllables, and all sorts of wackiness happens mm-hmm. um, depending on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we take as a sort of starting off point walls, um, they distinguish um, three syllable shapes or sh- three complexities of syllable shapes, simple, moderate, and complex. In the simple ones, you have only open syllables. That is, you only have consonant, vowel, consonant, vowel, consonant, vowel, possibly consonant, vowel, 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 consonant, vowel. But, you know, the, the pattern is pretty straightforward. Uh, a good like, example of like, a simple... Um, Japanese. Japanese. No, J- Japanese is actually modest, is a moderate complexity. About, Hawaiian oh, that's is right. Hawaiian? a better example. Hawaiian is a much better example. Japanese Chinese? allows mm. the the uh, crazy underspecified N as a coda, sort of. Yeah. And it has, has um, complex too. onsets. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, right. So when I say a complex onset, that means an, an onset of the syllable with more than one consonant. Um, then we get to the moderate syllable complexity, and this is the most common one um, in the world, and that's likely to involve mostly open syllables, but you have either a complex onset possible, so consonant one, consonant two, vowel, mm-hmm. with the second consonant being a glide, like wa or ya, or resonant, like ra or la, mm-hmm. um, or you can have consonant, vowel, consonant. Mm-hmm. With, and it's possible that that coda consonant might be heavily restrained. Like George mentioned, in Japanese, effectively, the only coda is a N or a nasal, yeah. an unspecified nasal. Yeah. Although, I mean, because in the middle of syllables, Japanese allows double consonants, then you get into all sorts of analysis issues here. But we'll, we'll 
avoid that for now. We'll just say that moderate, that Japanese has a moderate syllable. Chinese? Chinese has moderate syllable complexity. Yeah. Yes. Right. And that makes sense, right? Um, Consonant, but you might have a glide, an off glide, um, and you can have nasal codas Mm -hmm. in Mandarin, and you have three um, stops, uh, voiceless stops, additionally available in Cantonese, for example. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, And then last is the complex syllable shape. Um, which in which you can have multiple constants in the onset and coda. Yeah. I'm actually surprised by the disparity here. I would think, I would actually think of, think that complex syllable structures would be less common and simple syllable structures would be more common. Nope. Right. So the, in order of popularity, it's moderate, complex, and then simple is dead last. Yeah. Wow. That's fine. And um, that's Walls feature twelve A for those who are curious. Yeah, that that will be on in the show notes. What were you going to say, Mike? Oh no, I was just going to say I was just saying. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah. I expected I would have expected that. I mean, I can understand where the middle of the Venn diagram, perhaps moderate, would be like maybe very large because it's overlapping and maybe it's a continuum. But I'm surprised that simple only has 61 and complex is 151. I mean, that's more than double. Yeah. Yeah. And then and this, moderate this complex be, is almost double that. This may be a, a thing about uh, the way Walls classifies things. Mm-hmm. I mean, they cut off complex at – where did they cut co- – Cut off complex. Is it the the uh, clusters at the beginning and clusters at the end? Right. Once you've got a complex coda, then they count it as complex. Okay. So it may be just at their particular cutoffs. So. Or if you've got you know three consonants at in in an onset. That's true. Which right. English does. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All sorts of Indo-European languages do. Um, yeah. Um, it's important to know, so right now we've just been talking about syllables, and then you take multiple syllables or, and smoosh them all together to make squish. words. Mm-hmm. Um, and you might have different rules at the edges of the word. You might have restrictions at the start of the word or fewer restrictions at the start of the word um, or at the end of a word than you do for all of the syllables in the middle of the word. Um, so a good example, of course, is ancient Greek, yeah, ancient Greek, mm-hmm. which can have very complex syllable codas, but not at the end of a word, which only allows vowels, R, L, N, and S, huh. which does all sorts of fun things to the declensional system in, um, especially the vocatives. Um, cause consonants are just chucked away because they're not allowed there. Um, and there are a few words in ancient Greek that look like they end in consonants, but that's only because they're proclitics, right? They can never occur on their own. They have to have something following them. Yeah, and I, I, I'm going to mention something about that in a minute, but uh, go um, And then another example in the conlanging realm is, for example, quenya, which only allows voiced stops after voiced resonant codas. And that was particularly for... Because Tolkien wanted to get a particular mellifluous sound, right? Well, I mean, if you consider that sound especially mellifluous, but yeah, I mean, um, right. He this liked is, the way it sounded that way. He liked it the way it sounded, right. And and this is another thing that's useful to think about in constructing your sound system. I mean, that such um, so much of the appearance of Quenya has to do with its very restricted syllable structure. 
would that voice stop and voice coda agreement be, could it be a voicing assimilation or is how does that work? Cause I, I thought, but did not spend my time going yeah. to check out the historical basis of that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think the proto language had voice stops available in all positions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't remember. I'd have to go research that. Yeah. No worries. Um, do we have anything else we want to say about these basics before we head on to the sonority hierarchy? Um, no, not particularly. <laughs> Here's one. What do languages of the same family usually stick to the same kind of uh, syllable shapes, or no? Do you know? It depends. Well, it depends on the time, right? If they're very closely related, then you would expect them to have very similar some uh, shapes. Whereas in you know, as the more distantly related they are, then the more weirdness can happen. Because uh, I was. Thinking I like mean, the Romance languages are all moderate. I think they're not uh, complex. Uh-huh. And then Chinese and Japanese, we said, are both moderate, which they borrowed from each other, even though yeah, you know, I they're think not it's gonna related. Depend on yeah. how much contact they have with each other, and particularly what sound changes occur. Because some some certain kinds of sound changes can screw with your syllable structure. Royally. Oh yeah. Oh yes. I mean, you've got um, some of the Bantu languages basically have only, I would say simple systems um, with the weirdness that you have um, syllabic resonance that sometimes look like codas. Um, But then you have other Bantu languages that due to sound changes have quite complex onsets and codas. Yeah. It looks like the uh, moderately complex and complex are pretty well interspersed all over. They are grouped somewhat, but they're pretty much all over the place. Um, And then the simple ones seem to be mainly in, the chop like kind of just above the equator and just below the equator in uh, Africa and um, Indonesia area respectively. And a yeah, little South America. Um, yeah. I should, I, I do want to mention, I was going to mention this a little bit earlier um, that one thing that can occur um, occasionally is um, sort of suffixes and clitics and, Enclitics, William uh, alluded to this with ancient Greek, can actually sort of break your um, phonotactics a little bit because, um, okay, in English, if you are pronouncing it carefully, the about the most complex thing word you can say is strengths. So that's three consonant onset and three consonant coda. But that's only possible because you're adding the plural S to the mm-hmm. end. I don't think that you can have a three constant coda in English without the uh without either a coda S or the um genitive clinic clinic. Yeah. So. Um although I mean that's important to take in mind because some um clinics will still enforce the syllable structure so that you might need to think very carefully about what happens once enclitics or proclitics are involved. They might have different shapes to accommodate the sorts of sounds that follow them. That is true. Sometimes, Which, sometimes for example, does absolutely happen in ancient Greek. You have some uh, prepositions, especially, who have different shapes depending on what sort of word follows. That is true. And you can get a lot of different shapes just from derivational prefixes and stuff. Those those are almost are more likely to uh, change in form in order to conform to uh, the general word shape. Right. Mm-hmm. 
looking at the walls map, when there's a language that's spoken in many areas, is it um, only marked in where it originated? Yes. Like Spanish, for example. Yes, is exactly. that only marked in Spain and not I in South so. America? Mm. I think so. Okay. Um, all right. So what about those complex constant cluster onsets and codas? Hmm. Um, many languages have a sonority hierarchy, which determines the orders that those elements are allowed to query. Um, acoustically, this relates to actual loudness. You know, the vowel ah has a much higher sonority than the stop ta. So I can make A a great deal louder than T, right? Mm -hmm. um, so from most sonorant to least in general mm -hmm. are we start with vowels, then approximants, so glides and liquids, you know, like L, R, W, Y, that sort of stuff. Then nasals, then fricatives, then affricates, and then at the end are stops. Hmm. I would think that affricates would be before fricatives sometimes, but I don't know. Just because they're no. the stop in there might make them, you can pull, like, they're very, there's a plosive in there. Well, they're, well right, uh, affricates are closer to one end than stop. You know, they're closer to stops mm -hmm. than they are to nasals mm -hmm. than fricatives are. So that, I think the positioning makes sense. And, uh, do uh, like trills go in with liquids? Yes. Are they, uh, yes. approximants? Yes. Oh. The sonorancy, as far as I understand it, has to do mainly with how much obstruction there is in the airway. Right. I mean, that's one of the so, things. Honestly, I mean, some of this is a little bit controversial. Not every language um, can be neatly shown to, to follow anything remotely like this, but enough do that it still seems useful to talk about. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and then within the vowels, you can have higher or lesser degrees of sonorancy as well. So basically low vowels are most sonorant. So ah, basically, and then mid vowels, a and o, and then the high vowels, e and u. And it's useful starting with that is to think about how most diphthongs work in most languages as they go from lower to, um, they go from most sonorancy to lower sonorancy. So I and ow are very common. Eo and oi are very common. Um, but you know, something like air is a bit less common. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, might be, might. Be. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, or mm -hmm. So basically in complex syllables is there's, you start with least sonorant syllable, the least sonorant sounds, move up the scale in sonorancy until you get to the nucleus, which is going to be a vowel, which is most sonorant. Mm -hmm. And then you go backwards. You become increasing. You become decreasingly sonorant as you get to the end of the word. So, for example, we have a, something like crunch starts to stop. Then it has a resonant in the vowel, and then a nasal, and then an affricate crunch mm -hmm. or flip. Hmm. Right. We start yeah. with a fricative, and then another resonant, and then the vowel, and then we get the stop consonant at the end. That's in English, right? Oh, you follow that kind of... Yeah, yeah. I'm, yes, right. Uh, hmm. um, and, and that's basically it, right? You can sit down with a bunch of English words and break up the syllables or French words or Russian words or whatever, and you will find that very often a lot of this appears to be in play. Now, there is an oddball issue in plenty of languages where fricatives, especially sibilants, mm -hmm. 
pattern oddly and can occur in multiple positions. In particular, they may be at the very start or the very end of a syllable. Yeah. Like the the great answer for the great example from George, strength mm-hmm. and stops. Yeah. Um, I think there's some language I know that treats the velar fricative that way. So you get velar fricatives in very entertaining places. Yeah. I I do want to say playing with this little odd thing can really give you a very distinctive sound because uh I made a just a sketch one time. I don't know how far I re- I don't think I've developed it very far of a language that I called Fbecky, mm-hmm. which as you can hear from the name allowed pretty much any fricative to come before a stop at the onset. Yep. So, and it c- came out with a really odd sound to it. So, that's yeah. one of the distinctive features of not V is that really? it allows fricative plus stop, fricative plus anything, plus vowel, plus the rest of the syllable. Mm-hmm. Um, so, spill, uh, spong, skong, mm-hmm. skong, for example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think I think the the other fricatives are more surprising to uh, in, us as English speakers because you know we're used to s doing that right right and I think that's most common I mean you see that in language all over the place it's less common at least in my experience to see f or h yeah fulfilling this role it can happen but it seems to occur less often. Mm-hmm. I have it. Ah. <laughs> I mean, doesn't I mean, does isn't one of Russian's prepositions effectively a V or F depending on what follows it? Yeah, the word for uh, like in or on, and also the word for with is just an S, right? Uh, or S. Um, yeah, the Russian has a few of those V and S, which I assume are proclitic on the word they follow, right? They you can't. Yeah, just... they wouldn't occur just by itself. You'd say like kniga for in the book or kniga for in the book. Uh huh. Or like, you know, but there is actually, there is a, sometimes if the next word starts with, um, like Mnoy is the word for like the decline form for me, but you wouldn't say Smnoy, you'd say Samnoy. Oh, they add so a vowel. The, yeah. Sometimes the vowel does get put in, huh. but hmm. yeah, Russian has interesting consonant clusters. <laughs> yes, it, yes, it does. <laughs> but not as interesting as I saw in Georgian. I can't even pronounce those. Man, it's crazy. Right. I mean, one thing we've been skipping over is some languages, I mean, ha- allow things that simply have to be of slightly higher sonorancy to be the nucleus of a syllable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there are some languages that, you know, it's not even clear if they have what we would normally consider syllables in the usual sense. The two classic examples are Belakula, which is a language spoken in the Pacific Northwest, as always. Mm-hmm. Um, and several of the Berber languages of North Africa have these insane strings of consonants, and but they still have, you know, fricatives and the like that can effectively function as allowing you to breathe while pronouncing a word. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that's, that's something to consider as well. In that, um, where that uh phonoth- the I'm sorry the uh sonority hierarchy where do impl- implosives come in and like um clicks I have no idea where clicks follow I mean this is important to say about the sonority hierarchies I'm giving this very much in a sketch 
different mm-hmm. languages will put different things, right? Voiced consonants might pattern slightly differently from voice, voiceless consonants. I'm sure um, ejectives have an extremely low sonorancy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like, yeah. Sometimes it can be same with implosives. Yeah. Implosives, this, I think, would be quite This high. is usually um, defined in terms of more common types. I don't know if people really have figured out where clicks and um and adjectives fall in empirically, although adjectives seem it seems like adjectives would be something slightly less sonorant than a stop just from the way they sound. But Right. And it's it's a, it's a complex coarticulation which also adds to the funkiness. Mm-hmm. Um as I said, individual languages will tweak this a lot. I have a, a link here to the syllable structure of Lakota, which is very complex. Um, so they allow multiple stops, at multiple stops together as onsets, just like ancient Greek, right? Tholis, yeah. P-T-O, you know, things like that. I linked something from um, the Georgian where they have like Bugera and like BG or uh, yeah, yeah, a couple right. of those. Yeah. I really, I, I really for some reason irrationally have a, an, a love for the uh the TK onset K mm-hmm. like I like TK that too. Here. I like I like K Yeah. Even though it's 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 uh. like how do you actually deal with it? Well I just pronounced it, but it's it sounds odd. The P T is easier to pronounce T T T T I'm a fan uh, of the K T and but yeah, the that's not very common. I understand, right? Wait, Mike, you like yes. mass extinctions? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, the, the KT boundary is the name for uh, the. I think it's the Permian extinction, the gigantic <laughs> oh, yeah. asteroid that hit us. Sorry, well, <laughs> a little distraction there. Yes, I suppose. So that, right, yes. that that's that's where you call the mass extinction consonant cluster. <laughs> Yes. Hey, wait a second. Okay, on page twelve <laughs> of what? There's one yes. that looks like it's a glottal stop followed by an injective a. Page twelve of what? Of oh, the Lakota thing? Or not page page three? Uh, in one of the words in example. Uh, in uh, in example number twelve. Uh, are you sh- are you interpreting that little tick as the stress mark or as a glottal stop? Is it a stress mark instead? I think that's a, I think that's a stress mark. Okay, so that's just an objective. So yeah, right. Like the word "but," although some is chaos. Okay. I don't so think that there's that's that's not interesting from what we're talking about here. Right. <laughs> I thought um, it was more interesting than it was. But it so the um the Lakota thing is interesting because um lots of languages have. So we're getting a little bit away from the sonority hierarchy a little bit and thinking back, you know, more about, you know, syllable shapes. Different parts of words may have different rules. I already mentioned that at the beginning of a word and the end of a word can be weird. But this might be morphologically constrained. In Lakota, verb roots are quite constrained and very few permit codas, whereas normal Lakota words do. Um, mm-hmm. In Navajo, you can have a complex syllable or a modestly com- a moderate comp- a moderate syllable shape for the root of the verb, which is at the end, and then right next to 
the verbs, then you have the conjunct prefixes, which have very restricted syllable shapes and even what sort of consonants can occur there, right? No eject, no ejectives. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you have the disjunct prefixes, which can be much more, um, s- complex syllabically. And this makes sense because over the history of many of the Athabascan languages, prepositional phrases that get too close to the verb get sucked in and can never escape. Um, <laughs> But they, there's been less time for them to be worn down. So they have more complex syllable shapes. And then you have the really fundamental vital stuff like person marking and a few thematic prefixes um, are much reduced um, and and can do less complex things syllabically. Yeah, I think that um, if you're going to do the diachronic conlanging thing, then... Your phonotactics, your word shapes is something that you're going to have to sort of analyze after the fact. Mm-hmm. Although yeah. you can sort of, if you, if you have the right, uh, sound change applier or, or you are doing it yourself, uh, you, you may be able to program in morpheme boundaries and sort of predetermine a few things that way. But, uh. Right. And that's such, such the important thing for beginners is be aware of this. And think about your, your codas and your onsets because what happens when they run into each other? Because once you've got a moderately complex system, you're going to have all sorts of phonological processes when a coda runs into an onset. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Voicing, assimilation, all the stuff that we talked about in the phonological processes episode comes into play. And if you've suddenly got three consonants in a row, in a language that shouldn't otherwise permit that, you need to figure out what's going on. Yeah, it's just like um, I ran into a point where um, in Malviz I was running into, I had three consonants in a row and I kind of didn't want it to happen. So I had a second rule that would delete one of them. So Right, right. Deletions, epithetic vowels, all sorts of funkiness can, can come into play to, to solve the problem of illegal syllable shapes. Yeah, right. um, and, you know, we just talked about um, loan words recently, and it's the same thing, right? Not just the sounds need to be accommodated. The syllable shape needs to be accommodated. And for example, when Japanese borrows English words, such the the characteristic deformation of English words <laughs> borrowed into Japanese comes from the need to m- meet a very strict set of rules on syllable shape which is on the low end of modest complexity. Have I mentioned my uh, my Hawaiian Merry Christmas story on this podcast before? I think, I'm not sure. I think so. But You've mentioned sure Merry Christmas, but I mean, and how astonishing the changes are, but I didn't know there was a story going with it. Uh, there was not really a story. It was just the, the fact that I had heard that before, Melikalikimaka, mm-hmm. and, and then... Uh, and then later in a linguistics class, I was, um, I was figuring out which, uh, how loan words had been deformed in Hawaiian. And then it dawned on me that Melikalikimaka was a borrowing from English. But, but that has to do partly with syllable shapes because, of course, Hawaiian is very restricted in in terms of syllable shapes. I think it's just simple syllables. I think I think Hawaiian's one of the ones we can pretty safely say is simple. Yeah, yeah but it's also about phoneme inventory because there's yeah, yeah, no yeah. there's no t, there's no s, there's but um 
and they can those those things can interact a little bit um the i think the the main thing i think honestly your your frontal tactics and your frontological processes mm-hmm. may actually affect the sound of your language more than your straight up phoneme inventory absolutely yeah yes um yes um and then what else are going to say i think those were it i mean yeah that's it <laughs> yeah it's not it's not a very long topic is it it's just so, sort of i mean when, there's so much you can do with it but you need to sit down and i think especially for beginners it's helpful to think of cuz i certainly know when i first started conlanging i was not at all systematic in thinking about what sort of syllable shapes were possible. And I would get very strange forms once grammar started appearing. And then I'm like, oh, God, you know, sort of an artistic <laughs> tantrum. I hate this language. I hate it all. And I threw it out. And it was only later when I just really sort of systematically thought about this, then I could get control of, right, if you're aiming for a particular aesthetic mm-hmm. syllable shape and and the rules of what's permitted in syllable shape seems to me just such an important part of it. Mm-hmm. Right, you can concoct a lovely inventory of sounds, but you can still mix them together in weird ways that do not give you the results you want. Yeah. Um, when I do it, I don't usually write down a, like a hard necessarily form. I go with what sounds like it'll, it, what feels like it would be permitted in there, and then from that, I try to glean what is under what is what things, <laughs> what is the underlying processes that's there. But I do, you know, try to get that down first. And if it's like that doesn't sound like it should be there, then I'm like, oh, okay, well maybe this is what that's from like sure and 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 we've been talking about this scenario hierarchy but even with that as Mm -hmm. sort of a general principle there may be very particular rules right you might allow you know w and y as the second element of a complex onset and l but not r or you might not allow y for some reason right there's all sorts of things where you, you can have oh we allow this kind of consonant cluster onset but there may be gaps in sounds that can actually participate in that. So for some languages, unfortunately, it probably makes sense to have a chart. Now, here's a quick question. Um, Sorry, do you want to go ahead, George? No, go ahead. Um, I was just going to say, when when you're thinking about your onset uh, nucleus and coda, and you have a constant cluster, like say you have like, I don't know, like uh, Kakta or something like that, how do you guys think about necessarily whether it belongs to the... um, Code of the first syllable or the onset of the second? And how do you yes. break that up? Oh, yes. How do you definitely. guys? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, typically, I may, you know, spit out a few words mm-hmm. that have the aesthetic that I want. Mm-hmm. And then I tend to be, because this part of language invention is not high in my list of interesting things to do, mm-hmm. um, I tend to be pretty systematic about it. I mean, mm-hmm. I put in, I, I try to do things to make it not completely insanely unnatural, but I don't. Mm-hmm you know, make for the most part, big charts. Um, Um, And I'm perfectly happy to say this is syllable shapes. And then what I will do is get one of those word generators and feed it my rules and see if it produces things that look right. And if it doesn't, then I realize, then I decide that, that, you know, and tweak as necessary from there. Yeah. The, the, the word generator tools are a great thing for testing out your phonotactic rules. I find that my giant list of IREO roots, that I generated with a word generator 
I still have to fudge a little bit because they are doing things that I don't want it to actually do. And that's actually something I wanted to mention is that you can get really kind of, you can define things in this very strictly. Like in Iorio, I specifically went with some, some, I went some with some fairly specific rules like there are three constants you can have in a coda, L, the L, N, and the th sound, but mm. they can only occur at the end of a word. Right. Uh, and uh, anything that's word internal is an open syllable. And that seems sort of natural to me. And there's other things like you can have uh, an, an on glide with the y, but not if the uh, vowel is e. Just because that that just blends together anyway, right? Yeah, right. things things you can do little little adjustments like that to to do just just little changes to the sound of your language. Yeah, that's true. Especially with um, when you get glides involved, you know, W and Y for English yeah. speakers, all sorts of weirdness happens, right? In some languages, it makes better sense to think of them simply as consonants always, such that they can occur at the end of a word in ways mm -hmm. that probably English speakers aren't used to thinking about. It's like, why isn't that a diphthong? Because, you know, other rules apply. Mm -hmm. um, and you get assimilations like this, right? You don't expect Y plus I or W plus U mm -hmm. to persist very long in language. You expect them to simplify somehow. And in plenty of natural languages, they do. Mm -hmm. Hooray. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wonder, in Russian, um, when you have, like, your soft consonants and your hard consonants... And you have like a vowel ya. Yeah. I guess that would be just like having a, a, a glide in there. Slavic languages with that whole business scare me, so I don't know what uh. the best way to analyze that is. <laughs> don't be afraid. Uh. There's there's a funny painting by you know some grand old Soviet painter where he probably pre-Soviet actually some Russian painter, and he has these you know barbarian. Um, Tatars out in a field somewhere, drunk off their minds, and it's a great catas catastrophic party scene. Uh -huh. And there's some linguist who I don't know if he still has a blog. Um, just you know, has a little comment under saying you know saying proto proto Slavs discussing or, or making these decisions on their stress system. <laughs> right? It was a drunken party <laughs> determined how the Slavic languages are stressed. Well, except you know Bulgarian, which is regularized, but. Hmm. That that probably could be another future topic is stress and well we've done super segmentals right right though we could pull out stress and do it on its own but yeah I think, yeah, so. uh, I think we've talked about about all this is actually ended going to end up being a short episode with the new format here yeah so, that's okay um, we'll see how it goes but it's uh, I think that just about does it for that topic. I mean, you can dig deeper into stuff and figure out and and uh, learn about uh, from our links different uh, things that you can do. And uh, I think a lot of this is just going to depend on the individual conlanger and the individual conlang and what sound you actually want to have. Because, you know, everyone ha is going to have their own sort of aesthetics about this mm -hmm. particular subject. Sure. And 
everyone is going to want to make their language according to those aesthetics and that and then and so you kind of have to figure out how to make your own rules i think, I think uh, uh-huh. an interesting exercise for people who you know might have some spare time and are between languages as we might mm-hmm. say <laughs> um is to take um you know, a consonant and vowel inventory, not too mm-hmm. huge, not too weird, and try to make a bunch of quite differently sounding languages with just that inventory, hmm. right? Like by playing, I, by like by playing with things like syllable complexity and and rules at the beginnings of words and ends of words and assimilations. I mean, you can have a lot of fun with this. I think you can, you know, you can find the sound system for some future project when you have other ideas by simply playing with a small set of stuff. Cause I know some people, when they start with languages, they want to have something interesting phonetically. And they, so they do this by picking weird consonants, mm-hmm. which lets them use weird letters. But I think there's so much that can be done with what for, on the face of it looks like an extremely boring sound system um, yeah. can become quite interesting um, with some deeper thought about how those sounds go together. Yes. You don't necessarily I, have to, include adjectives just to be weird you can have like three three consonant codas with a broken sonority hierarchy yeah and be just as interesting and just as difficult to pronounce yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and sometimes it seems like the rules don't necessarily follow by you know families of sounds like english we allow uh, nasals at the beginning of words. I mean, we have loads and loads of them, you know, nail, man, but we don't have any that have the velar nasal at the start of a word. So it doesn't have to go by the whole family. It can just be, you know, this particular one. Um, one yeah, 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 I, I think that's true, that there are funny little oddballs that happen. And we've sort of hinted at this before, when, the, when you get a language that has to have charts to explain what consonants can occur next to each other is is a, a, a related um, principle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the 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 velar nasal is a common one. I think a lot of that will come if you do the historical method just naturally because language history tends to muck up the uh the waters as far as uh where what what can happen with phonotactics. Yeah. Um so I'll include a link uh for the reconstructed Proto-Algonquin language, they have to have a chart of um permitted constant clusters and it's interesting and worth a look for a kind of it's kind of symmetrical but also not really so there's some interesting stuff there and i will okay just so i think we can wrap up the show now um yep. there feels so short really not yeah i know we didn't talk is. for two hours <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's only been you know it's less than an hour how is that possible yeah but. well it the that's that's what you do when you when you uh cut the show in half but uh so next week we will have a whole show devoted to probably Akon Lang. Yep. Uh mm-hmm. we'll work with that. Or Natalie. And and then uh and then that will be the way going forward unless unless everyone strenuously objects to us going this direction. Um and so what what was I gonna say? Oh, we have no feedback today. Uh <laughs> But um, I do want to say, uh, keep sending in those top of the show greetings 
uh, in your conlang or in a natlang that you speak natively. We haven't gotten any of those since we did the German one. Uh, but one thing I really, really strongly uh, suggest that you send the, those as MP3s because people send me those as like odd sound files and I can open a lot of things. I can open waves and augs, but somebody sent me one that I can't open. Uh, uh, recently, and there's some people who send me videos, which I have to just sort of play and then capture the audio from. I really, really strongly prefer that you send MP3s because that I know that I can do. I can mm-hmm. just insert into the show. So, yeah. um, and I and, still want to hear people's playlists. What music do you listen to while conlanging? Assuming you listen to music while conlanging. If you don't, yes. find some. <laughs> That 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 may be a good prompt for you to send us some feedback. Send us your playlist. Yep. And uh <clears throat> other than that, uh I'm going to ask William, do you have any final words of wisdom? Not this week. Mike? Uh yeah, actually I do. Um it might be pretty obvious, but I think that whenever you're working on a language, you should try to practice saying what you're working with and um you know, I don't know if there's any, it seems natural for me. I always try to pronounce whatever I'm writing. And, um, I've heard people say, you know, try singing in it or try just speaking it aloud to yourself or whatever. But I, I would highly recommend if you don't do that already to try that because, um, it might give you a feel for, you know, oh, that's really odd. How can I make that more like what I'm looking for? Um, and sometimes just because you type something out doesn't mean you'll be able to necessarily speak it. Unless maybe you're making something for a mute alien race, in which case speaking it, <laughs> whatever, would be totally un- inapplicable. So, But that's my two cents. Yep, those are yeah, good that, cents. That, 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 I think that's good advice. I like to sound out my words before I, before I decide to use them because I want to see if they sound properly like the language I'm trying to get. Mm-hmm. But in any case, uh, I'm going to say happy Conlang. You have been listening to Conlangery. You can find the show notes for this episode and all previous episodes at conlangery.com, including links to our featured Conlang and a few resources to help you make sense of today's topic. You'll also find links to subscribe to us on iTunes or through other podcatchers, to our Twitter, Facebook, and Google Plus pages, and a whole lot more. Questions, comments, and suggestions may be sent to conlangery at gmail.com. You can also submit those translated greetings we play at the top of the show or conscripts to display in our header. Please see the contribute page for details. Thanks for listening. So I survived this week. I'm very happy about that. Hooray! I did too. <laughs> Madison blew through all sorts of records. 106 degrees in Middleton a few days ago. That's, un- that's cruel and unusual. It is cruel and unusual. And my air conditioner died last Sunday. Ooh, even worse. I had to pay a nice man to put in a very expensive capacitor. I don't know what that is. <laughs> A capacitor, it is used in electronics to moderate charge and to do things like make fans go and pumps go. Go where? 
around. <laughs> go around? Oh, my fan doesn't get around. And oh, seems... with the new version of iTunes? Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm always very careful to uncheck the extra stuff that it wants to load on. Oh, yeah? Like, it wants it, to... Um... Mm-hmm. It wants to download Safari and stuff too, and I don't want it, Safari. It, it, yeah, I don't see any iTunes. Yeah, there's no new iTunes reviews. Though we've got a lot of them, apparently. When we show up on the front page, that will be that will be <laughs> uh-huh. victory. <laughs> I'm not sure that's a reasonable expectation, but okay. I doubt it. I don't know. I could see some suicide notes. Come, Landry, how could you do this? I trusted you. Dun, dun, dun. Wow, that was sh- that feels like it was like a like a sprint, not even a sprint, like a leisurely walk. I was I was even though it was my idea, I was sort of ambivalent toward it because I was worried about um, losing the Conlang ep- aspect of the show, which is sort of central to the show. But after today's discussion, I realized, you know, when we talk about a linguistics topic. We often, we say, you know, this is what happens in natural languages, and this is how you can use that. Yes. This is what yeah. you can do in your conlang. And That's I what think I, li- I like that. It's very important, I think, that if we're going to do this splitting the show in two, when we do the linguistics topics, we also make sure that we say, and this is how you can use that creatively, you know, not... Not like rigidly structured like that, but you know what I'm saying. It talking talk about the linguistic features and stuff from a conlanger's perspective, from an artistic yeah. perspective. Like I think that uh, it's almost like the two different um, show approaches. One is conlanger vis or conlanging vis-a-vis linguistics, and one is conlanging vis-a-vis other conlangs. 